Welcome back to Ars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere and Elden Ring. I'm Nora, I'm joined by Mark. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark. And Autumn. I'm Autumn. <clears throat> I forgot we had... Because we ended yeah. up talking about this on Bag End for some reason, but we have not talked about this on um, the actual on our- Brandon Sanderson podcast that we do. <laughs> yeah, I... Literally until this news came out, and I was talking about it with Ben, I was under the impression that Elden Ring was literally a Tolkien adaptation. Like, it was, like, Lord of the Rings shit. Um, but I guess it's actually just, like, clearly it is doing some Lord of the Rings shit, but it's not, like, using the IP, I suppose. Yeah. Well, um, Miyazaki, the, the director on all these Dark Souls games, has talked in the past about, like, the inspiration for Dark Souls is, like, reading books like Lord of the Rings as, like, a Japanese child and not being able to understand half the words because they were in English. <laughs> oh, um, that, yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> so it's already, like, a lot of, like, Western fantasy novels refracted through not actually understanding them. Um, and then they just are taking a George R. R. Martin, like, outline for a setting um, and, like, kind of twisting that into their own thing. Um, George R. R. Martin has barely worked on this game. They just want his name in the advertising. <laughs> yeah, this is something... <laughs> so, yeah, I... First of all, I'm not at all surprised to hear that... Um, uh, what's, the, what's the preferred terminology now? I'm not part of this community, so I don't want to be offensive. How do you refer to these games? Are they... From Souls games, games works. Souls born Nikiro. No. Souls if, games. If you're a monster. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. sure. I'll say Souls games, and if I get called out on Twitter and uh doxxed by a mob of uh Sekiro stands, then I'll know who to blame. No, okay. but you um, said Souls games, not Sekiro. Well, I want <laughs> anyway. <sighs> anyway, um I'm not at all surprised to learn that the Souls games are like directly influenced by like english language fantasy novels because uh i mean first of all just because like of the shit that they're about but i know mm-hmm. what it looks like when you're a souls guy i know that you look like you're a western fantasy guy but yeah. um maybe more importantly uh everything i've gathered about how the like world building and narrative works in those games does make me think of how like giant fantasy tomes do world building you know mm-hmm and I don't mean that as a criticism in either direction. Um, it just is familiar. Yeah. Uh, um, I I also think it's, like, very funny that, um, again, this is something I was talking to Ben about, because I was like, I think George R. R. Martin, like, did maybe one day of work on this and then went back to sleep. And he was like, no, I think George R. R. Martin does enjoy doing, like world building shit Mm -hmm. i think he likes making a list of like lands and the cultures of the people that live there i think that's the fun part of writing for him and the nice thing about elden ring is he gets to just do that yeah and he Um, doesn't have to like make a plot or characters you know but also i bet that did last a weekend and then he went back to sleep (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it was Um, like 2015 or something yeah i think he said he hasn't been on the game since 2015 or something so yeah, that makes sense. Should we say why we're talking about Elden Ring? Because it's not just because Elden Ring exists and is a fantasy thing. And it's coming out. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Sanderson got on his podcast. This, okay. 
if I were Brandon's PR person, I would have absolutely forbid him from do for doing this. But anyway, Brandon got on his podcast and was like, "Can I be salty for a minute? I'm really upset." That they went with George R. R. Martin, a guy who sits around blogging about the NFL, and not me, someone who's been a fan of these games since 1999 or whatever. <laughs> since Kingsfield. Since Kingsfield. Um, and, like, Brandon, shut up. <laughs> it's so funny. He's so mad. He's oh so... my god. He wanted to I haven't Elden listened Ring to the podcast, so, so I don't know if he's actually mad. Well, but no, it doesn't matter what tone of voice he uses on the podcast. The fact, like, there's not that big of a world of, like, epic fantasy novel guys, right? If Brandon was inclined to make a drama with George R. R. Martin, there are probably basically an infinite number of reasons he could have done that over the past couple of decades. Uh-huh. Um but for the most part, I don't think he has chosen to make drama with George R. R. Martin. So the fact that this is the thing... Like, this is the place where they have some kind of conflict that he decides to talk about in public. I think that tells you that he's really pissed. <laughs> one one does get the impression... Ba- I'm basing this solely on the um, NFL blogging edition. That like, <laughs> that, like, Brandon has been, like, grinding this axe to pick with... Uh, <laughs> Or grinding this bone to pick with uh, George R. I don't know. I'm mixing my metaphors. Uh, like, <laughs> he has been mad about at, at George R. R. Martin about, like, 800 things. And this is what finally just, like, man, and he got to do fucking Elden Ring. I want to make a Souls game so bad. <laughs> yeah, like, it's so clear. Like, his basic contention is that he deserved to write this uh, a new Souls game because he's the gamer. Uh-huh. He's the gamer fantasy author. <laughs> uh-huh. it's, oh my god. You know that like basically every fantasy author who is Brandon's age or younger is also a gamer, right? Like what if right. they got Tamsin Mir to write <laughs> the new Elden Ring? God, that would be good actually. I don't even like Tamsin Mir books, but I would be into that. <laughs> I mean, they'd, they'd be like actually gay. You would yeah. actually have gay sex in them and I think that would be a good thing. Like I'm yeah. not saying that... Uh, Tamsin Mir's books are like the most important gay representation, but like they they do have but, gay people in them. <laughs> but Souls games are not typically about internality of characters, and that's kind of like Tamsin Mir's thing. the The thing that I pushed against in um the Tamsin Mir books was that there wasn't enough world building. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying she'd do a good job. Uh, I think part of <laughs> I think part of what's very funny about this is that I think Brandon's perspective on this is, like, completely misunderstanding why they picked the guy they did and what his actual job is on this, right? Because I think that Brandon is basically thinking about this as, what if I wrote a fantasy novel, like, I always write fantasy novels, but it was also a Souls game at the same time. But as we've just been talking about, uh, that is not what uh george r R. martin did here you know um i suspect brandon wanted to be like on the phone with like people in japan being like i think the jump button should be like this and i think the attack button i think that's what brandon wanted probably um which if i were a game developer i would be like no no he's got every single one of his books has a detailed power set 
Yeah. Right? He would want to write that part, but his way of thinking about writing that part would not really have anything to do with game design. And it'd be awful. <laughs> um, I think he's also upset. And this is a, a thing we haven't mentioned yet about Mistborn Birthright. Oh, yeah. I don't know about this. It's the a, mobile game? A canceled computer game set hundreds of years before Mistborn, the novel. Originally supposed to release in 2013, then pushed back to 2015, then pushed back to 2016, then as of late 2016, not happening. Huh. Yeah, that's gotta be part of it for sure. Um, The developer was like a, mostly a phone game studio. Okay. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, right, is like, obviously Brandon Sanderson is very successful, however... He is not a successful brand on the level that George R. R. Martin is. Yeah. You know? He didn't fucking write Game of Thrones, the TV show that was like, that was like water cooler material for every rando in the US yes. for years. Yes. Like, <laughs> um, like, his books sell a lot of copies, but he has not yet crossed into some sort of like. TV success, film success, video game success. He has not had, like, success outside of books yet. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm sure he feels salty about that. And the thing that's just so funny about this, like, the thing where he's like, oh, I should have gotten it because I was a gamer. It's like, they got George R. R. Martin because he's, like, a name they can trade on. Because probably people in Japan have heard of George R. R. Martin, yeah. right? Like, he's... George R. R. Martin is something they can sell the game on. Yes. And Brandon Sanderson is just not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's so funny. Anyway, did people read other books? I didn't read any other books. I tried reading other books once or twice, and words were just kind of in one ear and out the other. I could not latch on to anything. I've been keeping up with books for podcasts, and that's it. So I have nothing to report either. I... I have almost nothing. Um, I started reading uh, a collection of um, Ursula K. Le Guin short stories, but I literally like just started. I haven't even finished one of those stories, so I don't even want to mention the name of it in case I end up not finishing it. <laughs> don't want anyone yeah. to judge me. Um, yeah. And then I guess the only other things I read were two volumes of manga, one of which was like, the newest volume that I hadn't yet read of uh, A Bride's Story. Um, I didn't realize like, that still comes... I, well, I assumed that was a, like, long dead book or something. I don't know why I assumed uh, that, but I just did. Well, I think it is still coming out. However, the one that I read was not, like, the most recent one. I, I've i been trying to read it in print because, like, the art is really just so detailed and beautiful that I, I kind of don't really want to read, like scans on my ipad yeah Um, totally so i've been getting the like volumes out from the library um and also ben has been gradually buying them because he's like yeah this this shit rules i want to own this whole thing at some point um so what i read was volume 11 um and volume 11 was really great because um so like the whole comic you know is mostly following I mean, it's basically a romance comic, right? Um, and so it, it introduces you to all these different brides. Uh, but 
it, it, volume 11 brings the focus back to what I would say is like the the second most central couple in the narrative and um, the one around whom the I was going to say around whom the most drama is centered. That's not quite fair because uh, Carlick and Amir, who are like the central couple, who are like the first couple introduced, there's also a lot of drama around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Smith and Talis have a really like heartbreaking story because um, so Smith is the first like uh, Westerner character that we meet in the comic. Like in the be- in the first volume, um, he's like staying with the at the village or like with um, you know the family that the first volume is about and he's basically like a like a linguist or an anthropologist or something he's just trying to learn about their culture and like record it for you know european science um and it makes it sound like he'd be a total piece of shit but he's not he's basically just always asking questions and everyone thinks he's a little bit of an idiot because of that um but he's very like uh sort of um sweet and respectful all the time um because, you know, he understands that these people are, like, letting him stay in their home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he can't really, like, uh, you know, he can't, like, hunt or weave or take care of horses or do any of the other shit that is, like, part of their lives here. So he can't really give back that much. They're just sort of letting him stay there for free, mm-hmm. more or less. And he's, like, very uh, appreciative of that. Anyway, so he's, he's a sweet character. Um, and then... Uh, he kind of ends up, uh, in this situation where for a little while he's staying with, uh, he's staying at this house that's, like, it's not in the village. It's kind of, like, on its own. Like, it's not in the middle of nowhere, um, but it's not, like, in a settlement with other houses or anything. It's just a house with, like, some land around it, and and that's it. And, um, it turns out that in this house is, uh, a young woman named Talis and her mother, and the two of them are just in, like, a really difficult situation because, um, oh, I can't remember all the details. I know Talis was married, and then her husband died, and I I think she, God, there's more shit that had happened to her, but basically just, like, they, neither of them are married, but... They both have been married before, mm-hmm. and they don't really have a lot of, like, resources in general. Um, like, they're literally starting to run ro- low on food, and it's not super clear what they're going to be able to do to fix this situation. Um, and over the course of a couple of days that Smith ends up staying there because of some, you know, reason why he has to stay there, he and Talis like, clearly fall in love with each other, and, like, he... It, he gives her his pocket watch as essentially an engagement ring, right? Um, but then uh, circumstances end up tearing them apart and, like, um, some kind of, uh, I think a member of her in-laws shows up and is like, hey, I'm going to marry you. You have to leave this weird Westerner guy alone. Um, and they end up being, like, torn apart from each other and it's unclear if they're ever going to see each other again and I yeah so it's just like very very sad um and like uh you don't know what's going to happen to them and then in volume 11 they're reunited and uh his 
he's at this at the, that point in volume 11 he's met up again with this guy Hawkins who is basically his mentor someone who I think is probably about 10 15 years older than him um who's good friends with his parents and uh is kind of like look I understand that uh you want to like be traveling around you know um you want to be traveling around Central Asia recording all of their languages and stuff, but you do realize that there's war brewing with Russia, right? Your mom told me to come get you and bring you back to England. And Smith is like, oh, that's cool. Teach me how to do photography, and then I'm going to go right back into the exact same route that I was following. Uh, and it's like, they have a lot of great gay tension, right? Um, and uh, it's just really nice. I like everything that's going on with their with the various relationships here, and... Um, it's uh smith is a really fun kind of viewpoint character for this because you know the purpose of his journey is just to travel around and see all these different peoples and like try to get some sense of what their lives are like and that's what you want to do as someone reading this comic right right um, but then at the same time because smith is like a 19th century englishman um his culture is also a little bit alien to us um and you, we know that Kaurumori has a lot of interest in kind of, like, going deep on 19th century English, like, culture in the same way that she does uh, with the many cultures of 19th century Central Asia in these works. Because her previous work was called Emma and is all about, like, a, a, a Victorian maid falling in love. Um and uh, I know that's going to be really good, too. I need to go read that as well. Um, I've mm -hmm. seen pictures of all the dresses she drew for that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, that was that volume of A Bride Story. Um, it's very, very good. I really recommend you read it. It's a series that really has a good handle on both, like, kind of charming, lighthearted moments and also, like, romantic drama that will, like, tug at your heartstrings. Um... And then the other thing is just that I reread the first volume of Yatsuba. Um, read all. I that also before. did that pretty recently. Uh, that first volume of Yatsuba is so good. <laughs> yeah, it's really good, and it frankly only gets better from there. Like one of the things that was weird for me actually was rereading the first volume. I was like, oh, I mean, this is really good from the start for sure, but I can also a little bit see how this is like refined over time. Mm -hmm. Um, because like, uh. I don't know, just basically that the characters get a little more fleshed out. Um, and I think that, like, one of the kind of fundamental ideas of Yotsuba is that she's not just, like, a, a child, but that she's actually, like, even kind of more childlike than it makes sense for her to be for her age. Right. Um, like, there, there's a moment in the first volume where she doesn't know what a swing is. Um, yeah. And I think she's supposed to be, like, four years old, maybe. Yeah, four um, or five, I think. And I, I would be amazed if there's a, a four-year-old, uh, at least in a country like Japan or the U.S. that has, like, swing sets, who doesn't know what a swing is. Yeah. Um, what so, if uh, we convened a council of Calvin and Yotsuba to address <laughs> I mean, the Cal world's problems? Calvin's in the other direction, right? Like, uh, Calvin, Calvin is so adult-like for an eight-year-old. Yes, put them but, together. But, the thing, the, the cool thing is that, like, I do think that I'm mean, both of these cartoon characters. I feel like they work because the the things that they know about 
are a little bit like unrealistic in some sense, but their characters are very realistic. Calvin yes. does act and and behave like a, a shithead eight year old would. Yes. Uh, ben is DMing me that Yatsuba is officially five, so now you know. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, yeah, and like, yeah, I think Yatsuba has a very believable personality. Um, there are just certain things about her that are like slightly uh, weird that make some of like the humor of the comic go. Um, but I do think that like that sort of extreme, you know, ignorance about the world around her uh, gets toned down a little bit over time mm-hmm. into something that is still like it's still the case that she is like amazed by everything around her and like lots of things are new to her, even things that are. That, that would theoretically be familiar. Um, and that's what makes her such a little weirdo. And that's what makes the comic work. Um, but I think it's a little less cartoonish over time. Um, like, I also... I haven't yet read more than, like, half of a volume. But I also have Azamanga Dayo out from the library right now. Um, and that's this artist's previous work. Um, and it's like... Uh, Azamanga Dayo is, is a... Um, a four coma strip and the characters in it are very very stock um and i don't mean that as a criticism because you know uh lots of really excellent gag strip comics are based on stock characters that's like Mm -hmm. the format of the humor um but i think you can kind of see in the first volume of yatsuba like a transition away from like that extremely stock character writing to something that's a little more developed but that is still fundamentally cycle like focused around um jokes uh so that's just like an interesting thing i guess um in terms of seeing an artist's development (sighs) but yeah that's all i really have to say about the things i read should we uh talk about mistborn yeah i guess so yeah there's some shit in these chapters this is the sexual assault one that I've been knowing was coming. Yeah. I kind of forgot the extent to which it was... I, I, I misremembered some details here. But um, before we get into it, we read uh, chapters 21 through 25. We finished out part... Was it part three? Okay. So, um, there's some shit. We'll get to it point by point. I'm going to summarize chapter 21 unless there are any objections. Go for it. <clears throat> Kelsier is traveling to where the army is holed up doing their training. Kelsier's gonna, you know, rally the troops and like, you know, um just do a do a mission of like inspiring people, basically. Uh on the way there he's reading some from the diary we can uh from the from the Lord Rulers like diary before the Ascension. Uh we can talk about that in a minute um he's sort of a we get a scene of kelsier like sort of having like traumatic memories of um the pits of hath sin and you know he's kind of uncomfortable in this cave complex but he's doing his best uh and then the meat like the big thing that happens in this chapter there's a lot here <laughs> kelsier looks for a guy who is a sort of malcontent um 
and decides to make an example of him. He riots this guy's emotions to like make this guy speak up against Kelsier. Um, and then he has Demu, who is like a pretty good soldier who we've who I think we meet in this chapter. We might have seen him once before, but he's I think he's new here. Demu is like just a good loyal guy, um, and Demu like goes to defend Kelsier's honor, and Kelsier uses like metal pushing and pulling to guide Demu's blade and defeat um Bilg, I'm seeing here, in in combat. Uh, and then Kelsier is like, you know, when you go to war, I'll be with you, you know, like, just believe in me and, and you know, my magic powers and everything is going to turn out all right. We're going to kill the Lord Ruler. I don't know, know if he says we're going to kill the Lord Ruler, but he says, you know, the Empire is going to fall. So, uh, <laughs> really starting to see Kelsier's true colors. I think this is like who he has been. This is consistent with who he has been through the whole novel. But um, my first time through, this felt like a turning point for me um, in Kelsier's character. And now I see, like, oh, no, this is kind of who he has always been. And we are just, like, really, everybody else sees that now, you know? It's just yeah. another con. I mean, He's not I- punishing this guy. This is, he said to make an example of him. That's not really mm. the case. He's propping this guy up to be the devil's advocate that he can then defeat through this duel to inspire the rest of the troops yeah yeah i want to mention so i do think that this is a bit of a turn for kelsier not necessarily that i'm like oh yeah he was not like this before definitively but i do think this is like a big uh this is a moment that when you're reading you're seeing something new in him that you haven't seen before because so you left out something that i think is really crucial about this little show fight that he sets up Mm-hmm. Um, where, cause yeah, he, he's setting it up so that, you know, Bilg is the guy who's kind of like, I don't really know about this plan. You know, I've joined your army and now I cannot leave because you yes. won't let anyone quit yes. your army, um, which yes. is interesting. Uh, he's literally taken a bunch of, um, enslaved people and trapped them in caves and they can't leave now. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, but but yeah, so Bilg is like somebody who maybe already had some kind of thoughts along this way, so Kelsier like riots his feelings and gets him to be like, hey, fuck this shit, you're leading us to our deaths, I don't want to do this, um, so that he can, yeah, as you said, set up this fight with Captain Demu, and then Kelsier uses his powers to enhance Captain Demu, and everyone watching this is like, oh wow, Captain Demu has powers now because he's fighting for Kelsier's side, and then... Like, once he's won the fight, Kelsier tries to get Demu to kill the other guy. Um, yes. He tries to, like, push or pull the guy's weapon into Demu- into Bilg's, like, neck or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, and Demu fights it. He doesn't want to kill, you know, one of his own soldiers. Somebody who's uh-huh. done nothing wrong other than be unhappy. And, um... And then Kelsier, like, ends up deciding not to do it, to let his dissenter, his his little example, live. Um, mm. But I do think it's, like, very interesting, because previously when Kelsier has killed people, he's been 
so concerned to justify it and be like, these were bad people. Either yes. these were nobles, all nobles deserve to die, or these Ska took nobles' money to defend the final empire, and every Ska knows that it's wrong. But, like, mm. this guy is literally someone... It Kelsier killing this man would straight up be betraying him in exactly the way that Vin has convinced everyone, or was convinced, that everyone would yes. always betray everyone, right? Yeah. Um, and he doesn't do it. I think if he did go through with it, that would, like, really lose us a lot of sympathy for Kelsier because it's it's literally murdering a person yeah. who's done nothing wrong to, to further a lie, right? Yeah. Literally uh, all he's done is express doubts about this, which all of Kelsier's friends have also done. Um, yes. And none of Kelsier's friends are, you know, functionally imprisoned. <laughs> And, and what's interesting about this is Kelsier is not, like, 100% calculated about this. He's not just thinking to himself, well, obviously this man has done nothing wrong, really, but uh, I don't care about that. One must die so that I can um, inspire the rest of my army and ultimately accomplish my good end. He's not really thinking about it that way. In the moment where he wants to kill Bilg, he thinks, I mean, Kelsier paused. This man should die, he thought angrily. Um, I think Kelsier feels, to a certain extent, personally insulted that anyone in this army is not fully devoted to his cause and ready to die for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry, guys. Um, this is the maintenance guy. I'll be right yeah. back. No rush. Chapter 22? Uh, I, I guess? I think there was, like, one... Oh, there was one thing. I guess if you want to save this for when we are talking about um, the uh, sort of quotations from the Lord Ruler's journal, I'd be okay with that. But I just did have some thoughts about Kelsier reading that journal and his kind of reactions to it. Um, sure. That were from like the text of this chapter rather than the uh, thing. We can We can do that now. So... The thing that I found really, really strange about Kelsier's um, kind of reaction to this journal and his way of thinking about it is, um, you know, he's he's kind of like disturbed a little bit by the, the, the character portrait of the Lord Ruler um, before his ascension that he's getting from this book, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like Kelsier has always conceived of the Lord Ruler as like a an evil force, not like a person with like thoughts and feelings. And so... Reading his diary is kind of, like, weird for Kelsier. Um, yeah. And, and in particular, it's weird that it seems like the guy who's writing this diary does actually have some kind of, like, moral character that maybe Kelsier finds admirable. And that's, he's like, ah, that's impossible. This guy is, like, pure evil. He couldn't possibly have had, like, he couldn't possibly have had moral conflicts over what he was doing because... He's just pure evil and he's never had any moral conflicts in his head, which is like, obviously, you know, obviously that is Kelsier's, I guess, prejudice. Mm. But um, the thing that blows my mind about this is this paragraph. Still, the Lord Ruler's story reminded Kelsier of the legends he had heard, stories whispered by Ska, discussed by noblemen and memorized by keepers. They claimed that once, before the Ascension, the Lord Ruler had been the greatest of men, a beloved leader, a man entrusted with the fate of all mankind. I don't understand why those are 
secret whispered stories and not the official doctrine of the realm? Like, is it not the case that, like, what the official religion of this world believes is that the Lord Ruler saved us from a great evil and uh, and therefore gained the right to rule over all of us forever? Like, Maybe the church version is that he was some in some way always divine as opposed to previously mortal or, like, previously <clears throat> human. I get that, but what it really feels like is going on here is that Kelsier is like, um, what what it seems like Kelsier is is reacting to, is some sort of idea that that the idea that the Lord Ruler was ever potentially a good person that is like he's he's shocked by that, but then he's also like mm, I have heard whispers that he was once a good man, but it's like he, according to the dominant like, cultural mores of the society, he's the best man. Mm. I don't know. I, it just felt, I guess, like one of those places, I, I've often talked about how it feels like Kelsier's attachment to the idea of, like, the world as it was before, green plants and so on, it feels like he's coming to this world from our perspective. Mm. And this feels similar to me, where, like, Kelsier is coming to the concept of the Lord Ruler from our perspective, where he is obviously like a terrifying tyrant, rather than from the cultural perspective of his own world, where, I mean, like, I know that Kelsier believes he's a terrifying tyrant. That part doesn't shock me. It's the part where Kelsier should know that that is a a rebellious thing for him to believe. I don't know. It's strange. I feel like... I feel like nobody doesn't know that this is evil. Like, even the people who are in, like, the most privileged positions in this society, in this setting, and, like, have no... Don't have the same hardships that, like, the Ska do. And they have their own little, like, you know, noble intrigues and shenanigans and politicking i feel like even then everyone kind of knows that things are generally bad nobody is like out here thinking that this is a utopia i don't understand why though like i don't know maybe we should talk about this more when we get to the stuff later on with vin and her interactions with the nobles um mm -hmm. But I, I, I mean, I agree with you that I think what we're being presented with is a world where there is like a kind of fundamental moral rot in everything. And everyone, even the people who are living in some sense good lives, kind of know that this is all evil and like are afraid of the Lord Ruler more than they uh, sort of love and admire him. And, like even uh, even the obligators are all weirdly sinister despite being like like a priest class like not yeah. that priests aren't sinister but it's like are, is nobody out there like a true believer in the sense of like finding some kind of personal fulfillment in this doctrine like is nobody out there actually feeling spiritually like nourished by this or are they all sort of crafty agents of the of the lord ruler yeah, or, like, is no one out there? Because, like, I, you know, there have certainly been civilizations throughout history where, like, you know, the, the emperor or, or the, the monarch was perceived as somehow, like, like terrifying. 
um, and like removed from the rest of the world. Um, but that kind of belief is is very compatible with like the belief that that person is inherently morally good and like empowered by God and that the sort of social order that flows from that monarch is fundamentally good. Like, I think if the king showed up in your average, like, you know, English medieval peasant's village, that peasant would be terrified, right? Um, like, there were beliefs that, like, just the physical presence of the king would do weird shit. At the same time, none of that, like, undermined, you know, the kind of dominant uh, cultural ideology. I don't know why I said cultural ideology. The dominant ideology that, you know, the king had the divine right to rule. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just strange. Um, and I think there are ways to do this better because... This is a dying earth story, right? And the idea of a society with a fundamental moral rot where there are masses, like, suffering, and then there is, like, a a little upper crust of nobility who are living incredible lives of decadence, but who understand on some level that their society is sick and that, uh, you know, that there is something <clears throat> evil about the lives that they live. That is part of the dying earth genre on a, on a fundamental level. Um, but I just feel like this isn't doing it in a way that works for me, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to move on, uh, to chapter 22. <laughs> uh, chapter 22. Right. Fair Kimmy chapter. Okay. Vin's also reading. Vin is also reading. She um, hates it. <laughs> Vin is also reading uh, the same journal from the Lord Ruler. Uh, Spook. Um, Spook has his nickname at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, his cool. name is Spook now. We had a whole conversation about this a couple episodes ago, I think. Okay, good, good, good. Um, Spook gives her a little like um handkerchief um because he uh has a crush uh vin doesn't know what that means but someone's going to explain it to her soon um <clears throat> docs and renew are uh talking um and so while they're talking vin goes to talk to sazed about the journal a little bit and she's like Hey, there's all this stuff about terrorist people in um, the journal. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And she kind of pries and gets, um, you know, also asks about like, hey, you saved me. Um, how the fuck did you get to Luthadel so quick? You know, stuff like that. Um, and Sazed explains to her Farakimi, which I will explain to the listener after I finish the summary of the chapter. Um... But, like, Sazed explains that terrorist people, um, much like nobles, might have a chance of being born with um, Allomancy, terrorist people might have a chance of being born with Farrakimi, um, and the Lord Ruler has, like, vindictively hunted down any, like, Farrakimists uh, for a thousand years. Um, the Keepers are, you know, a sort of secret society of... Um, Farrakimists, 
um, who like put their lives at great peril by even like practicing ferrochemy, but they think it's important. Um, and they're able to like store a lot of knowledge, um, of world history, of world religions, of all type, types of things, uh, in the hopes that someday, you know, they'll be able to share that knowledge with everybody once the Lord Ruler has fallen. Um, and, you know, Sazed specifically specializes in knowing all about religions from before the final empire. It's not like Alamancy. It's not it's like Alamancy at all. It's not split up. Yeah, 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 I will explain that in a second. I was just saying it's all or nothing. Yeah, yeah, I will explain Farrakhemi in a moment. Um... Anyway, after that conversation with um, uh, Sazed, Vin talks to Docs for a little bit. He tells her his backstory um, and how it's very tragic. And um, and you don't remember what it is? No, no. A, a woman dies for a, a, a man's backstory. It's standard Brandon stuff. You it's know. all about all the... Um horrible oh, sexual yes. assault murder that's always happening in this setting and and um yes like it it is established that and we've seen we've seen hints of this in the very first chapter that like you know nobles uh noble men often will take ska women um and like rape them and then kill them you know um and well the the point is that the killing is mandatory. Yes. If you yeah. if you rape her, you have to kill her. Yeah. Um, I, I think this has been basically established before as like, that's what the law is. Um, but now we're being reminded of it because it's going to become a whole plot point. Yeah. Because Vin starts to wonder like, I'm, I, I have a crush on Ellen and Ellen is a noble. Has Ellen's done this? Um, and we will circle back to that, uh, when we get there. Um, Last thing, I will explain Farrakimi. Um, Alamancers, like, drink in metal and then burn it to do things like pushing, pulling, you know, all, all those sorts of things we've dis described before. Farrakimists wear their metal. They might wear, like, you know, um, uh, uh, it has, like, copper braces on his arms. And if you are a Farrakimist, you have everything. You are, like, a like, you know, we've talked about mistings and mistborn, but ferrochemists, like Nora said, have all the powers of ferrochemy if they have any powers at all. Um, and how I, I know that we get like the explanation of like the copper mines here. Um, I, I, maybe I, it would be best for me to describe what I know here, yes, so that you don't actually yes, accidentally because I, it is it has been about a week since I read these chapters, so I don't want to like say something and give the game away yeah so so basically what he explains is that um ferrochemists have the ability to store things in metals and like each type of metal can store something different uh and so for example the thing that vin sees in the book that causes her to like ask about this and be like what are these powers is that uh the lord ruler describes uh terrace pacman who um, kind of enter like a, a weakened state in the evening so that when they're doing that, they're basically draining away their own physical strength, storing it in their bracelets so that the next day they can have superhuman strength. Um, right. And yes. uh, I get the sense that the things that can be 
stored this way are probably a little like parallel to the allomantic things because yes. obviously physical strength. Um, we also uh, hear the idea that Sazed has been storing, or, or rather that when he went and saved Vin, that he uh, like spent a bunch of stored up uh, like sight, like ability to sense uh, keenly. Um, so, you know, sounds like it has essentially the same effect as burning tin in that regard. Um, but the effect on him in that case was that, you know, I, I presume it's not totally clear to me how, um, cause it's not clear to me how much prep ahead of time this requires. Um, and in the little fiddly details, but, um, the important thing is because he had to see very keenly when he was rescuing Vin, that meant that he, uh, had bad vision for like weeks afterwards. So he was wearing little cute glasses. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that they were cute, but I assumed that they were. Um, <laughs> I think that the implication is that he had stored that up and he's recovering that, whereas mm. he, I don't, he doesn't get to overcharge and then make up for it. Okay, so it's that he, he used up his reserves of, of yeah. uh, heightened senses. And now he's, now he's like storing those things up again Trying for to the get next them back. emergency. Got it, you you want to you wanna store that up so that you can have it whenever you need it mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense that's that's smart of him um it's just it's interesting to note that that's not if he wasn't dedicated to keeping those in reserve he wouldn't have to have done this little glasses thing um but yeah. it, it does seem like a very good idea for him to keep that in reserve since obviously it's very useful in emergencies yes this and is also why spook thought he was an inquisitor because he was big oh right uh, he was, yeah. oh he became physically large that's that's what Spook says. He said, "Big man in a cloak," and everyone <laughs> thought it was an inquisitor. Oh, I guess that makes sense. I didn't put that together at all. Partly because Spook's dialogue is stupid, and, <laughs> and partly because I, I guess I thought it was it hadn't been previously established that um, that Sazed was not himself large. I guess I don't know. Anyway, um. Yeah, I don't I don't think um I don't think I really picked up on until book 3 like oh, Sazed literally gets larger when he does this. Like I don't I don't think I like those things came together in my head for a long time. <laughs> so Anyway, the other I guess very important thing that Furukumi can do, which is not really parallel to any kind of allomancy as far as I know, um is of course the thing we kind of already knew that they could do, which is that they can store knowledge in mm-hmm. metal um copper specifically can store knowledge um which i guess alimantically copper can hide knowledge in some sense so eh, yeah it, i don't know tenuous. whatever <laughs> i'm not gonna worry about that that's if there is some kind of important parallelism between these two magic systems i am sure it'll get explained um anyhow yeah um and it sounds like the way that that uh, keepers have this arranged, they all have this the complete collection of all the knowledge that, I mean, all the knowledge that the keepers are keeping. Um, and like, Sazed has like essentially an area of research interest, but he doesn't. It sounds like actually have more knowledge about ancient religions than anyone else does. He's just more interested in that knowledge. Yeah. Um. presumably there's you know another keeper who's like oh i have all this like knowledge of like food that was eaten before the final empire 
you well, know. No, but that's actually, okay, I guess this is a little confusing to me and I might be worth, because the impression that I got from Sazed was not, like when I say he has a research interest, I do not mean that he has more information on ancient religions, because it sounded like he was explicitly saying every single keeper has precisely the oh, same Oh, does he library. say that? Okay. okay. That, that is what I understood him to be saying. I when think he you said, might be right. I think you might be right. Yeah, he said, we all remember the entire collection. If just one of us survives yeah. until the death of the Lord Ruler, then the world's people will be able to recover all that they have lost. Um, mm. I do think it's interesting that that implies that no keeper bothers to record any kind of new information um, or to try to research any type of ancient information because, I mean, if any keeper was ever trying to, like, look at ancient texts and recover new in- or recover ancient information that had been lost, but, like, recover it again, right, rather than actually preserve it in an unbroken line, then that keeper would have to, like, go meet up with all the other keepers and share that info for the things Sazed is saying to be true. I'm sure that's easier if there were, like, more than 12 of them out there. Mm-hmm. And, well, like, yeah, I guess like I... there's not a whole lot of them out there to, to, to be able to, I mean, to that's... add to the collection. That's true, but it also doesn't, like, I don't know. Yes, if there's only, like, 12 of them, it's easier for them all to, like, sync their libraries. Um, but on the other hand, doesn't sound like Sazed has been in touch with any of his Keeper brethren for I, a I while. more meant that it's, um... It's easy, it's... It seems more likely that they're not doing research right now because they're in, like, survival mode, is what I'm saying. Mm, yeah, that's fair. Um... That's that's fair. Um, I would I would be curious to know, like, I I assume this to be true, and maybe this is revealed in some later book, in some later chapter. But I would assume that Sazed's probably storing a lot of his own memories in the copper mine for like whatever, you know, any other keepers who might you know, like end up needing this. I don't I don't know if that's true. It just made sense in my mind that like, oh, maybe. He is, um, you know. It's also like if they're like the the current the modern terrorist perception of like generations or passing things on is also impacted by the fact that most of them can't have children. Yeah, and yeah, so I... it's interesting to think about like what is Sazed's feeling about like leaving this collection behind? Like, what is he thinking about when he's? God, like, I can't. I can't believe this just hit me now, because this is so obvious, and this is so obviously why these powers are set up this way, but ob- it must be possible for one Farukamist to literally remove their metal mind and give it to another Farukamist, right? Like, if, if Sazed took off one of his bracers and gave it to someone else who was also able to access the information in it... I mean, you know, maybe it doesn't work completely easily that way. Maybe you can't just draw on someone else's copper mind immediately. Um, but just, like, it's so clear that uh, the objects that it is storing these things in are physically uh, uh, movable in a way that mm-hmm. um, alimantic powers are not. Uh, yeah. So that's going to have also, to be important somehow. There's also no loss of resource mm-hmm. with Farrakhemi. Because mm-hmm. in Allomancy, you're burning up the metal as a fuel. In Farrakhemi, you're moving something around and putting it back. And yeah. you can you can replace it after you've accessed it. 
Yeah. Like, I, I would say there is a loss of resource, but it's a it's a renewable resource in some sense, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Or rather, that's true with the um with like the stored up strength, right? Mm-hmm. Uh like you use up the stored up strength, but then you can renew it and you can use the same metal to do that. You're not destroying your, your bracelets. Um Right. I don't know what it would mean if the knowledge in a copper mind was used up? I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, I We get a clarification on how that works at some point. I yeah. think soon. I think probably I, in the next set of chapters we're gonna... Probably in this book, but they have, like, it, there is a there is a specific, like, thing that is that is described and it's like, yeah. okay, that's fine. That's That's yeah. an explanation. I think yeah. I think that's coming up pretty soon. I could be mistaken, but I think that's like in the next set of chapters. So yeah, I'm not fussed about it. Like I'm not at all surprised to hear you two say that that information eventually comes up. Um, I do remember that previously there was something going on with um, Seiza doing surgery, which certainly could have been him just uh, using up capacities to be, let's say, to have very precise senses and and maybe to. Um, move his hands in an extremely careful and precise way um but i guess at the time i the vibe that i got from it was that he was also like activating surgeon knowledge powers um (laughs) so i i don't know what that was about i don't know if that means that he used up his knowledge of surgery and might have to replenish it somehow i'll find out i'm sure i'm not stressed i just wanted to mention that i have been thinking about that yeah um and then, yeah, the other major thing I think in this chapter, besides the explanation of Farakami, is the doc stuff. But I don't know how much I want to say about it because the the like cultural norm of rape and murder is going to get like expounded on very soon in a way that I like in the next chapter we're going to talk about. Yeah. So I don't know how much I want to say about it here. And then the the doc's backstory is like, yeah, of course. Brandon put another like tragic dead wife. Dead wife. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think the Doc's backstory stuff is is really purely to push on this thing that's going to get, as you say, way more developed in the next chapter of like um, this very established cultural norm of sexual assault and murder that like all the noblemen are doing all the time, or at least that's the way Doc's talks about it. Um, I guess the question of whether it's all of them <laughs> is going to become important. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, uh, but but obviously, yeah, that's being talked about in this chapter, I think, to set up what Vin is thinking about in the next chapter. So I agree. Let's, uh, I agree that we should talk um, about that with the next one. The, I guess the one thing I want to say about Dox's character is that I think it's... Um, I think it's like a nice counterpoint to Kelsier to have, you know, Kelsier sort of like this burning passion for killing nobles whereas doc's just very calm and collected yeah i think we'd be better off if they were all fucking dead (laughs) yeah yeah um i i just thought that was that's a fun character dynamic i don't have insight about that yeah it seems like there's kind of an interesting thing that is being done in these chapters and that again i think is starting to be set up here and it's going to be talked about more in following chapters of like our noble people from like Vin and Kelsier and Docs and all the rest of our like sympathetic characters perspective are they all just like 
fundamentally evil and need to die? Or could some of them possibly be people? <laughs> Seems to be what we're talking about. Yeah, that is the great moral dilemma. Um, Which, uh, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Chapter 23? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Vin is con- conversing with other members of nobility and pleased to find out Kelsier's attempts at causing tension among houses is working. She's still troubled by Doxon's talk and wonders... Is worried to talk to Ellen for... Whatever. She's thinking about Ellen. Vin also learns that uh, Inquisitors are tracking down Ska thieves more frequently. And as she's about to leave, Shan comes up to talk to her. She tells Vin to search through Ellen's books the next time she sees him and report back to her. Uh, and as Vin is waiting for Sazed, she sees Ellen. And she confronts him and uh, asks if he's ever slept with a Ska woman. Ellen explains his father made him once when he was 13, but he never did it again. Vin talks to Ellen about how Ska really act, and Ellen is fascinated by it. He leaves with his friends after giving her a handkerchief, showing, uh, uh, which we didn't explain in the last we, chapter. Yeah. The handkerchief is a sign that you want to court someone. Yeah. Um, so he gives her a handkerchief because she's crying, and then he's like, also keep it because it's not just a handkerchief. Yeah. Um, so he walks out with his friends. Vin goes outside, and Alamancy's up to the wall to listen in on their conversation, they're talking about the Lord Ruler. Um, you know, what are they going to do when their generation has the power? Mm-hmm. Uh, will they change things? Will they keep things the same? Uh, also, Kelsier shows up outside, and he and Vin have a very brief conversation and then leave. Yeah. Um, the next chapter is like Kelsier kind of thinks more about this conversation, right? Uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, we could talk maybe more about Kelsier in chapter 24, but yeah. Um, so, when I remembered this book, what I thought was that I remembered Ellen's dad forces him to do it, but what my in my memory, it was that Ellen's dad tried to and Ellen refused to but this woman still got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, did not realize it was like much darker than my memory. I almost wonder if in my memory, like I am just going to sandpaper over like this really dark and uncomfortable thing that happens in this book. <laughs> yeah. Like in some ways I, there are, this is a development that I find interesting and that reminds me of things I've seen. I mean, Frankly, it actually reminds me a lot of uh, an early plot point in The Shadow of the Torturer, which I know is, like, the unfair comparison I always want to make with this book, because that's the Dying Earth series I love so much. But, like, you know, this is a situation where Ellen, as, like, a 13-year-old, right, as a child, is forced by his father to have sex that he doesn't want to have, right? So Ellen has also been essentially sexually assaulted here yes yes but in a way that also means that he himself has committed a sexual assault right yeah um he's been used by someone else as a tool of rape which is really like fucked up and thorny right he is both yeah (laughs) the victim and the perpetrator of some really brutal violence yes um 
which as I said is kind of like <coughs> something that happens early on in The Shadow of the Torturer where Severian is basically told by his father figures like, hey, we need you to go have sex somewhere because um, for plot reasons, we think that's something you need to do. Um, and, you know, he does it and it's very um, creepy and and definitely doesn't feel like it's a good thing for the woman he's having sex with either. Uh, but at the same time, he's also like a teenager at this time and is being commanded to do this by, his, you know, his father figures, men he can't really say no to. Um, and uh, I think that this could be really complicated and compelling and like good fodder for drama and for like saying things about how you know, um, saying things about complicity and about how, like, a a society that is founded on, like, deep violence the way this society is also does that violence in some ways to the people who are, like, advantaged by it. Um, but also, like, like, that, that, that being in a social position where you are essentially forced to commit horrific acts is not, like, good for the person who's forced to do that. But at the mm -hmm. same time, it doesn't erase their complicity. These are very interesting things you could talk about in fiction, but I don't really think this book is actually interested in grappling with any of that. Like, Vin hears that Ellen is a rapist. And a yeah. murderer. That Ellen yeah. raped a woman whom he knew would then be killed. Like, mm -hmm. he did that. <laughs> like, and she is, like, very disturbed by that. But then, like, five minutes later, she says, It wasn't your fault, Ellen. You were just a 13-year-old boy who was doing what his father told him. And it's like, Which, I mean, like, yes, I agree in I some ways. But, but, but the fact that... Vin comes to that conclusion immediately with no trouble. Um, especially when, like, let's think about Vin's relationship to violence, right? Uh, remember how not that long ago Vin was killing people because Kelsier put her in a situation where she had to kill people and she had some mm -hmm. kind of complicated thoughts about it and her conclusion ultimately was, yeah, I am morally responsible for these deaths, but I also think that these deaths are good, so I or or that they are acceptable. So I'm not going to, she, like when she killed people, she was like, "Wow, I do have blood on my hands, but that's okay." She didn't think to herself, "Well, I'm just a 16 year old girl doing what my father tells me I have to do, so I have no fault in it," which is what she's perfectly willing to extend to Ellen here. Um, and I'm not trying to say, "Oh, she's inconsistent," but more just like. I don't know. I think it's wild that she didn't take any time to, like, chew this over. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Literally, like, a he says this thing about this, like, terrifying violence mm -hmm. that he was involved in. And then a minute later, she's saying it wasn't your fault. And she's thinking to herself, this is a man who cares. A man like Kelsier or like Dachshund. A good man. Why can't they see that? 
the simplicity of what a good man is in this work. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's just the simplicity of Vin's perspective. Um, it feels like everyone has a very binary understanding of good and evil people. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is weird because, like, so much of the show, or so much of the book is, like, concerned with moral grays, but then, like, everything is black and white despite everybody, like, oh, maybe there's gray. (laughs) Yeah, this book's idea of moral gray is that there are situations where you could become confused or you could have arguments over whether someone is good or bad. But there are no situations, I think, as far as this book is concerned, where it would just straight up be the truth that a single human being's moral worth could not be determined. Like, there's no... It doesn't feel like there's any situation in this book where it would be accurate to the way the book conceives of the characters to just straight up say, you can't say if this is a good man or a bad man. This is just a man. Yeah. Is there a single major character, or even side character, who's a man that does not have a dead woman in his backstory? Mm. We don't know if Breeze has a dead woman in his backstory. Ham's wife is alive. Well, Breeze is gay. death if he messes <laughs> up. Yeah, so, so I think, yeah, if we expand it to include, like, rather than just exclusively women who are dead, if we also include, like, women who are clearly going to die in the course of the narrative. <laughs> um, like I said, Breeze is gay. Um, let's see. We don't know anything yeah, they, about they, the Lord Ruler. We don't know what happened to the Lord Ruler's husband, or, or not husband, mother or wife. <laughs> um, da, 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 da. Kelsier, Docs, obviously Marsh also. Um, uh, Reen, obviously. Oh, right. Marsh has the same dead wife that Kelsier does. Yes. Uh, <laughs> they both have a dead wife. Yeah, it's really efficient. Wife. It's really efficient if you give two guys the same wife. <laughs> you can have, uh, you can, you can get away with just killing one woman and, and doing, having her do double duty. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I could. I'd have to look at an actual full list of characters. Um, I, I guess think our list is Breeze and Clubs, Spook? and also Spook because yeah. he's a child. Yeah. Well, we he's don't know the Oscar Pines of this. <laughs> On the other hand, we don't know where Spook's mother is. She could totally be dead. She's a ska, so uh, could be dead mom. Did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vin, Vin has a dead mom. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Even the women get dead women. <laughs> Not only the men, but the women and children, too. Not only men, but the the, the people who dress like men. <laughs> uh, she gets yeah. to wear pants again in this set of chapters. Should we... I don't have a ton about the books stuff that Shan asks about. Is this, um... It's not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah. clearly, clearly Elland has some somewhat subversive political interests. He's got a little group of dudes that he's meeting with to talk about how maybe the Lord Ruler isn't all he's cracked up to be. And he's trying to get mm-hmm. them to read this, you know, not really banned, but still somewhat subversive literature. And Shan is trying to stick her nose into that and presumably yeah. get him in trouble. And it, because it's not banned is why it's obscure. 
That's yeah. such a silly idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I understand the logic. It is just a, it is a very silly thing in my mind. I don't know. I do think that the kind of um, precise schematic way that it's presented is very silly. Like, mm-hmm. the idea that there are, um, you know, books that in some way present a critique of, like, a, a, an empire, but that because they were published a very long time ago and their critiques did not really lead to, like, any kind of effective resistance at the time that they were made, that they're not actually, like, uh, sort of the the hottest, most subversive thing in the current day. Like, that's very believable. You know, you can get the Communist Manifesto anywhere. Um, you know, I... <laughs> I, I guess, credit to Brandon, they banned Mouse and then it entered the New York Times bestseller list again, so. <sighs> oh, man. I mean, that's um, true. The, the whole thing of banned books in the U.S. is a weird, um, I'm not trying to, I don't know. I have lots of thoughts about that, but I guess they're not really directly relevant right now. Yeah. I have a cute little banned books mug from back when I used to care more about this issue. <laughs> yeah, um... The comic book legal defense fund. Ugh. We can't. We can't. We can't. <laughs> I, I've, I've invoked the evil name. <laughs> chapter 24. Before we do chapter 24, can I run to the restroom? Or I can run while you do the summary. Okay. I'll be back. Kelsier and Vin arrive at Clubs's shop, where many other crew members are. Kelsier discusses the status of the mission. Everybody has a really nice evening together <laughs> where everyone is happy. If you've read a Brandon Sanderson book, you know what's about to happen. Vin realizes how much she loves her new life without hiding in the shadows. Kelsier asks Ham to go to the garrison, and Vin decides to go with him to learn about Pewter. On the way, Ham talks about his family and a little bit about Kelsier, and gives her some Pewter pointers. Hashtag Pewter pointers. (laughs) um, And plans on showing her some sparring. Uh, but when they get there, they find out that the garrison is leaving. Um, I've garrison is leaving uh, because the... well, because the... they've they've found the the ska army that Kelsier has been building, basically. Um, yes, the at the end of this chapter, we find out that the ska rebellion has attacked a garrison fortress, like idiots. Yes. They have come out of the caves and decided to engage in active, like, combat against a target. <laughs> um, so do we want... Yeah, most of this, this chapter, chapter is pe- pewter pointers and, yeah. um, like, one okay. night of everyone having fun together before everything goes to shit. Now, Ham does uh, start to establish a labor theory of value. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> um specifically at, at their little party this is clearly just meant mm-hmm. to be part of the sort of pleasant vibe because part of ham's thing is that he's always just uh bringing up philosophical questions that no one cares about so of course if we're hanging out with ham he's gonna do that but they have this little conversation about money basically um uh, <laughs> because ham is always uh Sun's out, guns out. He ripped the arms off his uniform coat, which is so stupid, but I love it. I like him. He might be my favorite character. <laughs> He's great. Uh, anyway, he ripped the arms off his uniform coat, and Dachshund is like, 
those things cost money. Please don't do that. And he's like, oh, well, what is money? A physical representation of the abstract concept of effort. Well, wearing that uniform for so long was a pretty mean effort. I'd say that this vest and I are even now, which I (laughs) fucking love because the thing is, if anyone in this room thought about economics or, or, um, like just broad sort of concepts in the way that Ham does, they'd be like, Ham, the effort that went into sewing those sleeves was way more than the effort of you fucking wearing them for two weeks, you dipshit. But he knows that no one's going to call him on this, so he can just say these sort of stupid, flippant things. And the worst he's Mm going to get is, like, someone rolling their eyes. Literally, Doxum just rolled his eyes, it says. (laughs) Remember last book when we... Lost it over the farming and the economy. <laughs> Brandon has decided I don't need to put any of that stuff in this book anymore. Actually, it's better if I don't try to to make some sort of like complicated setup with um, farm n- not knowing about farms. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's very funny that because like the idea that money is. A physical representation of the abstract concept of effort. Um, that is not uh, precisely, that is certainly not the Marxian labor theory mm-hmm. of value, because that is a lot more complicated. Um, and I wouldn't say it's even really any of the other kind of um, earlier theories that preceded it. Um, but it is like, broadly speaking, it is a labor theory of value. It is a theory that says um, money represents like effort somehow um Mm -hmm. and he says it like everyone just knows that this is true which just makes me want to ask so many questions about (laughs) the uh history of the like field of economic theory in this setting um because you know that idea came from somewhere right that's not what people thought money was in I don't know, fucking Bronze Age, like, Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know. But, of course, I'm not going to get that, which is fine, but... No, no, <sighs> no. You will get so much detail about the magic powers and nothing about the economics. <laughs> I don't even want the economics. I want the intellectual history here. Um like, Ham read that in a book somewhere, I would imagine. I don't know. It's treated like it's just transparently obvious, actually, what I, which I would imagine is how it's actually being thought about here. But what I'm saying is that that's not actually how any of this works. And therefore, in my head canon, uh, Ham is out there. <laughs> Ham is out there reading, like, white papers. <laughs> oh. Ham subscribes to academic journals. How much pewter pointer talk do we need to get into? None. Zero. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Basically, <laughs> power is not skill, so if you just, you know, go ham on oh. it, uh, you'll still lose, no matter how strong you are, if somebody's a better fighter than you. So you have to, it's better to use it to, like, you know, in a pinch, get your balance to weather a blow, not to just, like, blast it 24-7. I mean, you know... 
Credit Chapter to- 25, Vin and Kelsey are blasted 24-7. <laughs> I, I, I wanna, I, I'm not that interested in the pewter pointers because I think, frankly, yeah. that this is like the most obvious shit in the world. If you've ever played a video game, you know that if you have some kind of limited resource that gives you a boost, that you don't want to just use it all up in the first five seconds of a fight. You want to save it for crucial moments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. However, what I'm interested in is Ham's discussion of, like why he's doing what he's doing um because he's like yeah like i have a family and i don't really get to spend a lot of time with them but you know i send money to them and i take care of them i can't really live with them because if i did uh you know if if i spent a lot of time with my family and the inquisitors caught me as a misting then all my family would immediately be killed so i am i'm protecting them by mostly living apart from them um and Vin is like, well, then why are you doing this misting stuff? Especially if, like, you know, Ham has kind of... He'll, he'll make it clear through the course of this conversation that, you know, he, he likes Kelsier's political aims, but he's not really that... Com- like, Ham is not, like, a, a super, like, true believer. He's, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. In general, I think Ham is someone who is not super committed to any um, ideology. He's just always trying to, like, toss these ideas around and think about them. And then no one is interested in actually, like, uh, uh, convincing him of anything ever. So he's not convinced by anything because no one is engaging on his level. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, so he's just sort of like, yeah, well, I I can't... I, I wouldn't choose to not use my allomancy because it makes so much money. Like, it makes mm-hmm. so much more money than I could if I was just doing, like, regular thief stuff. So, even my, though it... My wife only works to keep up the appearances, you know? Yeah, like, she doesn't really have to work. And and maybe more importantly than that, theoretically, someday I could save up enough money that I could get away from all this shit. I could just go move somewhere. Yeah, that can boggled just my mind. <laughs> The the idea that one could, in the final empire, just get away from it all, get away from the class dynamics, blew my mind. Because it feels... Everything in the book so far has been totalizing. The the final empire has reigned for a thousand years. Um, It has, you know, touched every corner of the earth as far as we know. And the idea that a ska could just save up enough to get away and not worry about all this too much just felt totally incompatible with what yeah. we had been presented. <laughs> I, I, think, we... I, I think that the way that I would sort of square those things is that I don't think Ham actually, like, I fully believe that there are places in the Final Empire where life for a Ska is very different than it is either in Luthadel or in the plantations that immediately surround Luthadel. I guess in the plantations in the central dominance Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a big empire. There are places out there where things are arranged differently. And Ham doesn't really know that much about those places. And so I think it would be very easy for him to believe, like, oh, well, they don't have the plantation system there. And they don't have the sort of uh, city, like, mill worker system there. So it must be essentially a paradise with no class divisions. Um, I'll go buy my little farm in Kansas. Exactly. And then when he gets there, it's not going to be paradise there's gonna be other shit that sucks there in different ways um Mm -hmm. but you know i'm totally willing to believe that there are places where life 
would be more tolerable mm-hmm. for him. Like, you know, uh, I guess it just, it, it is felt, and maybe this is partly because of the perspective of the characters that like the final empire, like the Lord ruler is everything. Mm-hmm. It feels like the, the final empire is like, so totalizing that it is like hard to imagine life being any different than where it is than how it is right here um and i just find i find it interesting that like no if you get really far away you know there aren't as many you know inquisitors who are gonna hassle you there aren't as many you know this or that because you're just far away from the you know the center of everything. Yeah, I said that Ham is not, like, a real believer in any ideology, but obviously that's not true. Obviously he is a believer in this idea of another place where things are better. Um, and, and that is sort of treated as a somewhat more, like, practical belief, but it's still a belief. Um, so I guess, yeah. Um, I'm also a little interested in talking about the sort of ongoing discussion of this like are nobles people and like what is a good man thing because kelsey i think vin is thinking about this all the time now and she's kind of just asking everyone she talks to about it you know um like she talked to dachshin about it she talked to ellen about it now she's talking to ham about it um and she's kind of like in this in this chapter it occurs to her like what would happen if Kelsier took the Imperial throne? Like, would that power corrupt him? Because now that I've been reading this diary, it seems like the Lord Ruler was not always a terrible person. So what if becoming the Lord Ruler made him evil? And what if that happens to Kelsier? And, um, you know, uh, she's kind of thinking about this and she doesn't really know what to make of it. And, um, she asks him whether, uh, he thinks that Kelsier wants to exterminate every single noble, and Ham is like, yeah, I think he kind of does want to do that, and I don't think it's a very good idea, but, eh, I'm sure we can, like, rein him in. <laughs> um, good luck with that, I guess. Ham also says, uh... This eleventh metal business—it's almost like he's making himself out to be some kind of holy man. Don't worry too much. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna—we've all talked about it. We're gonna confront him and see if he, we can't rein him in. Yeah, yeah. No, very clearly, uh, Kelsier is um, getting a little in over. Well, I don't know if he's getting in over his own head, but he's getting in over everybody else's heads in terms of uh, making himself into like a savior figure. Um, the survivor of Hathson. Yes, yes. Because building his own legend. Because he sinned. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> to be fair, I think you're just picking up on what Brandon was putting down, but I still hate it. I've never <laughs> considered it before now. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we move on to chapter twenty-five? Sure. Speaking of Kelsier <laughs> causing problems. <laughs> So, uh, the army moved out to attack uh, Holstep Garrison, and then the rest of the army, not the Skull Army, the rest of the Empire Army, yeah, wipes them all out. Yep. 
And um, Vin and Kelsier basically flare pewter and sprint cross country for like 16 hours. <coughs> and that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, they find a remnant in the caves led by Menace from the uh, prologue. Mm-hmm. Mostly people who are either too young or too old to have been um, swayed by Yaden's mm-hmm. uh, ambitions. Yaden, by the way, head on a spike outside. Yeah, he's the one who basically led this led this incredibly stupid <clears throat> attack because Kelsier's little stunt convinced him. I mean, essentially convinced him that they had God on their side and couldn't lose. Um, uh huh. Not God. I don't know if it was an explicitly religious belief, but it convinced him that they had, you know, a, a supernatural power and, and that they couldn't lose. Yeah. And so Menace is like, hey, you did it, man. That's like the farthest we've gotten so far. You should be proud. Yeah. And he's like, I can't believe we have, we're so, this is the real fight against the thousand years of conditioning that... 5,000 deaths can be considered a victory. I I love Kelsier. In these chapters, I really needed Kelsier to get over himself a little bit. And I think that's purposeful. I think, like, you're supposed to be a little fed up with Kelsier in this moment. Um, He is so self-important, but... um, I think the last, like, three paragraphs of this chapter, which are also the last three paragraphs of part three are pretty good in terms of uh, in terms of what they're doing with Kelsier's character. Um, uh, do you think I could Can read I those? Read That'd be cool. Oh, you're going to read it, Mark. Cool. Yeah. Perfect. Um, that wasn't a victory, Menace, Kelsier whispered. I'll show you a victory. He forced himself to smile, not of, out of pleasure and not out of satisfaction. He smiled despite the grief he felt at the deaths of his men. He smiled... Because that was what he did. That was how he proved to the Lord Ruler, and to himself, that he wasn't beaten. No, he wasn't going to walk away. He wasn't finished yet. Not by far. So this is great, right? This is Kelsier being like, wow, I am at my lowest. Like, I have failed so much. Mm -hmm. I am responsible Mm -hmm. for this, like, horrible slaughter that accomplished nothing. And you know what? I am doubling the fuck down. Uh, the, 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 like, thing that I was doing in the first chapter where I was like, yeah, I smile because that's how I, like, that's my little rebellion. He's like, yeah, I'm maintaining that. Even in this, like, horrific defeat, that's still my attitude. I can turn this thing around. Um, Mm. and I think that's very compelling. Um, now I also think it's very, uh, terrifying um (laughs) but in a good way i think that we are meant to be kind of like kelsier what are you doing buddy like how's this gonna work out for you um poorly i assume (laughs) (laughs) but it's compelling i think yeah yeah um no i uh, like kelsier's character is in such a good place and i'm also like Kelsier, my guy, please tone down the ego. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. He, um, he is not like, all right, this really sucks. 
let me start building the plans for how we're going to regroup over the course of the next, like, five years. How we're going to rebuild this uh-huh. uh, from this enormous loss. Kelsier is... I mean, this is a gambler's mindset, right? He just lost uh-huh. big, so he is going to bet even more. Um, he is yeah. in, like, sunk cost fallacy mode right now. <laughs> I, I got I got 5,000 men killed. All right, I'm getting prepped to get 10,000 killed. Mm-hmm. I also just feel, um, I think maybe part of my feeling, and it, to be to be clear, none of this is me complaining about the book. I'm complaining about Kelsier, but I think this is all, like, <laughs> Just good fiction. Yeah. Um, but another complaint about Kelsier is, Kelsier, please, I need you to be nicer to Vin. She is a child. And you are like, <laughs> she is a child and she just ran for 16 hours. Come on, dude. You literally, earlier in the set of chapters, is like, you know, I always wanted a kid and I imagined that if I had a kid that she would have been just like you. Not that you're my kid, just that, you know, if I had a kid, and if you had fatherly feelings about me, I would have fatherly feelings toward you. And then immediately, like, an hour later, I was like, hey, Vin, we're going to run for the next 16 hours. <laughs> I just hate it. My logan yeah. in this moment. <laughs> it feels like Kelsier's preferred method of teaching Vin allomancy, including, like, what I think, I think this could probably be described as some pretty advanced allomancy. Um, yeah. Like in particular, I think this is probably something that really only Mistborn can do because you need to use tin to kind of uh, support yourself potentially after you've used yeah. pewter for so long. Anyway, um, his preferred method for teaching her is just to always throw her in the deep end and just yeah. like start doing shit, and she has to figure it out as she goes and keep up. Um, which is definitely a, a dick move. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like it, though, because I think it reflects, like, I mean, to some extent, like, we've been talking about how, like, El- Kelsier has this huge ego, right? Um, Kelsier is this, he, 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 is the best at everything, you know? Like, we've been told, like, oh, no, the Mistings who specialize mm-hmm. in metals are better at their metals. But, like, no, that's not fucking true. Kelsier's the best yeah. at everything. Um, yeah. And he expects the same from Vin, he basically sees Vin in some ways as a little Kelsier, and so he's like, well, if I can do this, she's she can also do it. She's just going to be able to pick it up. Um, and I think that's characterful for him. He's always expecting a lot from people, and he expects the most from Vin. Um, mm-hmm. But I agree also that it's like, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Kelsier has, like, issues that he's just refusing to work through. <laughs> I just feel so frustrated with him. Um, I love him, though. Yeah. Um, I, I'm i definitely looking forward to an actual confrontation between Vin and Kelsier. Because at some point, Vin is going to be like, Kelsier, both for moral and practical reasons, we cannot exterminate every single noble. I, I don't want <laughs> to do that. And also, I don't think it will work. I don't know if she has Look, both of those I've things. I've created elementically powered guillotines. <laughs> like, even, even, uh, there have been movements in history where, you know, um, one group of people has taken over and has wanted to slaughter everyone in the group that was previously in power, right? Uh, I mean, you know, that 
the terror in the in the French Revolution is is one example, mm-hmm. but there there's many, not all of which I think are as uh, like sympathetic examples of class struggle as that one. But but it's actually very hard to track down every member, even of a relatively small privileged population, and kill mm-hmm. every single one of them. You know. Um, yeah. So. I do not believe that they're going to be able to accomplish that. Um, and, you know, clearly other people on Kelsier's crew are also kind of like, Kelsier, it's it's not, you you want to kill every nobleman, and I don't think that's going to work out for you, buddy. Um, I assume that when the confrontation actually happens, it's going to be more about, like, no, some of them are good. Eland is handsome. Um, <laughs> but, you know. Was it... Was it you or Olivia that tweeted um, in this set of chapters, like, Brandon, like, shoves aside the, like, problematic age gap relationship he's been setting up to introduce the real (laughs) problematic age gap relationship, which is Vin and Ellen. As we learned that Ellen is five years older than Vin, who is 16. I think that was actually in the last set of chapters that we read that we learned Ellen's age. Um, But, but. And I also don't remember who said that. I don't think it was me, because I think I would have remembered saying that. But, um... I think it was Olivia then. I just couldn't remember. At Great Grieve on Twitter? <laughs> Some type of bird. Friend, wow. of, friend of the show? Uh, uh-huh. Fellow Miss Olivia Critiker. is invited to guest on any episode of Arcanum that she wants, but I can't imagine that she wants. <laughs> she hates Brandon books. I mean... <laughs> we could have a bonus episode where we read <clears throat> a good book. We could. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, that might do it for these five chapters. Yeah. Look, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the hell's going to happen. I don't know what Kelsier's going to do next, and that's fun. Um, yeah, I feel like I complained a lot, but um, this was on my first reading, like, where the book, like, really kicked it into um, sixth gear, and I think it's also true this time. Like, I think, like, the book is getting really good, um, and I complain because it's easy to complain, but I'm really enjoying the book right now, so. You want to hear some chapter headers? Yeah. Oh, yes, I almost forgot. This part is also kicking into high gear, I feel. I mean, now that the characters are actually interacting with it, for one thing. Yeah, that helps a lot. Chapter 21. The hero of ages shall not be a man, but a force. No nation may claim him, no woman shall keep him, and no king may slay him. He shall belong to no one, or he shall belong to none, not even himself. Chapter 22. At first, there were those who didn't think that deepness was a serious danger, at least not to them. However, it brought with it a blight that I have seen infect nearly every part of the land. Armies are useless before it. Great cities are laid low by its power. Crops fail and the land dies. This is the thing I fight. This is the monster I must defeat. I fear that I have taken too long. Already so much destruction has occurred that I fear for mankind's survival. Is this truly the end of the world as many of the philosophers predict? Chapter 23. I sleep but a few hours each night. We must press forward, traveling as much as we can each day. But when I finally lie down, I find sleep elusive. The same thoughts that trouble me during the day are only compounded by the stillness of the night. And above it all, I hear the thumping sounds from above, the pulsings from the mountains, drawing me closer with each beat. 
those are the that's that's the end of that yeah chapter 24 in the end i must trust in myself i have seen men who have beaten from themselves the ability to recognize truth and goodness and i do not think i'm one of them i can still see the tears in a young young child's eyes and feel pain in his suffering if i ever lose this then i will know uh, that i've passed beyond hope of redemption <laughs> Um, and chapter 25, no man dies by my hand or command except that I wish there had been another way. Still, I kill them. Sometimes I wish that I weren't such a cursed realist. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 25, one, very funny, especially like contrasted against Kelsier's character. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I mean when I say this is kicking into high gear. I think that the yeah. uh, character pal- parallels between the Lord Ruler, at least at the time when he was, you know, going on this hero journey, and Kelsier are being, like, really underlined with, with red pen here. And mm-hmm. and I like it. I think it's good. Um, I also am very interested in the implications about, like, the deepness is something that causes the crops to fail. Like, kind of sounds I? like maybe yeah, the deepness yeah. has actually taken over the world <laughs> rather than being defeated, maybe. Who knows? Um, yeah. I, this is, like, genuinely don't remember, like, this sort of thing, but, like, we know that, like, you know, there are not green plants, you know, Mm -hmm. and so, like, I I don't know, like, is the deepness still around, you know, like, like, I'm curious to see where that goes, because it feels like some of that stuff is reflected in what we know about, you know, the modern final empire. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely will be interested to learn what actually happened between the Lord ruler and the deepness 5,000 years ago, which I assume we aren't going to learn in this book. Um, but you know, I am interested in that. Um, also I think this stuff about the pulses definitely makes Mm -hmm. it sound like he is, sensing like a great alimantic power in some way um and it also doesn't really sound like he is aware of alimancy because if the lord ruler knew what alimancy was and knew that people sometimes sense things through alimancy as pulses i presume he would say something about huh this reminds me of what i know about alimancy so Perhaps allomancy yeah. is something that is only possible now that whatever the fuck happened has happened to the world. That seems interesting. Yeah. I think it's good when these little sections just make me have speculations about the setting. Um, I feel like that's what they're for. <laughs> when we return, we will be starting part four, Dancers in a Sea of Mist. I'll just say real quick... Um... The, the the chapter headers like this are a thing that Brandon returns to across multiple different series that he's written, and I think the chapter headers for this first Mistborn book are some of my favorite that he's done. You know? Yeah. Uh, I love these. So. Mark. Yeah. Where can people find you online? You can find my Twitter account at Char Asnablunt, um, and you can find my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh, at um, abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Um, we haven't put out an episode in a little while, but that's because uh, we are preparing for a huge stupid thing that we're doing. <laughs> um, because there was a 
really bizarre and um, overambitious Moby Dick musical in 2019, and we talked about it with a couple of other guys who had all who saw it live. Um, we talked about it with them for like four very long episodes. <laughs> so we've got a lot to say about that stupid musical, um, and it it's all gonna come out in the next couple of months. So if you like hearing me talk about how much I think something is uh, dropping the ball on its themes and how it could be so much more interesting, um, that's what that is. Autumn? You can find me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all my podcasts at exportodd.io. That takes you to the Patreon page where we have Links to all the free feeds of everything. You can give us a dollar a month to get early access to this podcast, to Bag End Book Club, to Batman and more. Um, and for $5, you get access to Pop Town Funk. If you are thinking to yourself, wow, they only make export like once a month now. Uh, we make uh, export audio a couple times a month. It's just on a different manner called Pop Town Funk a little bit, where we roll random Funko Pops and Nora and I talk about the you know if we get an andre the giant funko pop we watch the princess bride if we get a max goof funko pop we watch a goofy movie and if we get uh a farah funko pop then we read some overwatch comics and think about possibly installing overwatch but we're probably not going to do that (laughs) um but yeah that's me you can find me on Twitter at NeitherNora. You can find stuff I've done at NoraBlake.online. We're reading five chapters again next time, so be sure to read along with us. Hey, I think now that uh, Microsoft owns Activision, that Overwatch is going to be on Game Pass. It's free to play. It's free to play? It's always been free to play. All right. Oh, you just had to pay $40 to get like a bunch of like exclusive costumes when it launched. Yeah. Right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Anyway... That's all. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.